0: Thank you, Steve, for reading our passage and for praying. My name is Matt. I'm one of the elders here at Joy, and I am punching far above my pay grade here. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was talking to Jeff, and I said, Jeff, you want to take another, another uh, sermon this morning and, and preach for us? But Jeff graciously declined. He's already got enough on his plate, but it's good to be here. And I want to thank you uh, for just your prayers, church. It has made a huge difference That's for my dad I told myself I'm not going to cry because I don't normally cry. And I know I'd, I'm going to get through this message without crying. My dad is doing so well. Thank you for your prayers. My, my mother-in-law, Maria, just she had her cancer treatments, you've been such an encouragement. Glory to God. Glory to God. So thank you. Thank you, first and foremost. Um, so this morning is the fourth and final sermon from our stint in the book of Matthew, and it's uh, Jesus' last days on the earth, as recorded by Matthew. And it's, uh, we're, t- we're at the end of the chapter here, in chapter 28, and it's the so-called Great Commission. And I don't know if anybody's ever been overseas, but there's something different about actually experiencing something overseas that can't really be explained. It's something that when you see people, even those those pictures that we just saw, it brings another element to it. When you see the lost, when you see people without Christ, when you see people who have no gospel, something is different. And I want to make one firm statement. I have disobeyed the Great Commission far, far more than I've ever obeyed it. Jesus, our King, deserves perfect obedience. I fall incredibly short in love for evangelism, love for people, love for the nations, and love for the lost. And I think we all have, have we not? And it's impossible for any one person or any of number of people to scratch the surface in accomplishing such a monumental task as evangelizing the whole world. We are in a war against an enemy which we cannot win on our own. And what we will learn this morning is it's exactly what Jesus intended. The spread of the gospel is impossible without the Holy Spirit, and that's why he gave the Great Commission. Then he gave the Holy Spirit, John 20, to the disciples, and to the larger gathering of the church in Acts 2, during what we would know as Pentecost. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And I pray that in a new way this morning, he would give us a movement of the Spirit this morning. As a matter of fact, if we tried to do this on our own with a man-centered gospel, it would inevitably, at some point, stop spreading. All fads die, if it's anything we know about this world. But this is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus saves. Jesus builds his church. Jesus spreads the gospel on the winds of the Holy Spirit, In the hands of those who have gone before us we get to join in we get to be used as tools of our good and gracious king to plant and water seeds born from the spirit over millennia and what a joy it can be and we're a living thing are we not the church is a living thing right and how would you describe a living thing how would i describe a dog right You know, what do you describe? How do you describe something that's living, something that that has life to it? It doesn't isn't isn't just sit there. It doesn't just, it moves, it grows, it's fed, it reproduces. And I think this morning joy is at a cusp of reproducing. We have pushed out these walls, and now it's time to grow and to go out. Our sanctuary is full. And we are multiplying disciples here. Could we multiply disciples afar? Could we do it? And this morning, I pray, will be a litmus test of some of you who are considering the nations. Do you have the faith to go? Jeff and Kirsten are putting it on display this morning. Perhaps there's some here that might have that same faith. And some are going to Guatemala, or India and Nepal this summer. Some are taking steps, and maybe some of you have never considered going. Yet we all have a role to play. We all, even here, have a role to play in sending and going. And I want to use this time as an exhortation for each and every one of you. To exhort means to move to action through words. I can't force you to do anything. I can exhort you. And I think we really can be successful at this. I really do. We've done it before. And I'm going to list the people that have sent and have gone out before. I know it's a paradox. I said, well, you can only do it through the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing. But it's it's a challenge. It's an exhortation that God actually uses you, Joy Community Fellowship, to go and do his work. It's a mystery. And with God, all things are possible. Christ has given us all that we need in the Great Commission to take steps of faith. So, what is the Great Commission? So, let's define our terms. Of course, the Great Commission, as a phrase, you see it in your header here, it's not specifically in the passage, but first of all, it's great. (laughs) It's great. It's great, right? And great can mean really awesome, but it can also mean really, really, really big, and really impossible, taking lots of time and energy and planning and work, and a mission is a specific task to which a people or group is charged. You are charged with a mission, and not just a mission, but a co-mission. You know what co-means? Together. And not just together, meaning us, but together with Christ. Together with his church. It is a co-mission that we do together. So when will this mission end? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. His commission isn't valid if the promise to come again is not true. And how many people want Jesus to come back? You feel that more these days? But he doesn't come back until the mission is done. Matthew twenty-four fourteen says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So it's been about 2,000 years. How are we doing? A study came out that said 51% of churchgoers in America were unfamiliar with the term, the Great Commission. 25% had heard of it, but couldn't say what it was. So 76% can't, mean, can't explain the Great Commission. And I think one, one person might call it the Great Omission from the pulpit. And I praise God that's not the case here. We understand it, but we need to be exhorted exhorted to action. So what is the scope of the Great Commission? It's the whole world. The world is big. The population of the world just passed 8 billion last year. According to the Joshua Project, which tracks the spread of the gospel throughout the world, there are 17,445 people groups, distinct languages and cultures. Of those groups, 7,388 are unreached and least reached. We learned about one of them this morning. That means less than 2% Christian and no church community to reach their people. These unreached people groups have 3.4 billion, so 42% of the world's population is in that unreached people groups, and as I said, 3.4 billion people. It's great, right? And on top of that, every American dollar that is spent on missions, less than a penny, goes to unreached peoples. And of that fraction of the penny, only 3% of all missionaries go to unreached peoples, which means about... 12,000 out of 400,000 missionaries. 12,000 trying to reach 3.4 billion people. But don't be discouraged. There's good news. Aslan is on the move. Christ is on the move. And us, the people, consider where we are. How far is Pittman from Jerusalem? Anybody have a guess? Who knew knew it? Ah, you said it last week. (laughs) Jason. 6,000 miles. Thank you. Good job. You know, James always, always chiming in. Good. So we are a product of history. People believed the Great Commission. They went. They went to America. They came. They set up homes, raised their families, and they planted Churches. And then more churches were started, particularly here in Pittman in 1871. And so we have this little church. Our church would not exist if it were not for obedience to the Great Commission. Encouraging? Yeah, right? More encouragement. Jeff told us about the need for Bible translation. But I'll tell you, we went to the Museum of the Bible, and and you can actually look at all the Bible translations. Very cool if you've ever been there. There are 3,589 languages with at least some scripture in their tongue. But, so we have 7,388, but 3,589 covers 97% of the world's population. Isn't that encouraging? 97% of the world's population has the Bible, some portion of Scripture, in their tongue. 1680 languages left. And with so many technologies for Bible translation, the finish line is actually in sight. More encouragement. Christ has given us boats and planes and cars and scooters to move us to unreached places. The disciples had to walk. Walk. And we'll talk about walking in just a bit. Missionary aviators, for example, have been able to cut trips from a three-day's journey through thick, bug-infested jungles to only two hours by plane. He's given us apps and websites, Bible translation tools, and technologies that would boggle the mind of the early church. And more encouragement. Christ has given us each other He's given us fellow workers, missions agencies, BAM businesses, missions committees, and he sent some from our church. Steve and Pat, Amanda, Lane and Lisa, Greg and Lisa, Brian and Carol. And you know what? One thing I love about Joy is we send our best. We send Marines to the nations to establish gospel beachheads of advance. And we've sent many to the nations, can we send more of our best this morning? So, finally, getting to the text, I want to highlight three ways in which the Great Commission, Great Commission spurs us on to action. Action. First of all, uh, looking at verse 18, we see a claim, a claim in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we'll look at the claim of Jesus. Who is he, and why should we obey? Next, we'll look at the commands of the Great Commission. And I'll I'll actually highlight commands in verse 16, 17, and 19. Typically, we only look at the commands of go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. There's more commands there. And the comforts of the Great Commission. That's the best part. I love that part. How does Jesus help us obey? And that's in verse 20. I'm not going to spoil that one. That's the clincher. So the claim, the commands, and the comforts. Jesus owns it all, and he promises us to, to be with us so we can obey his commands with confidence. The claim number one, Jesus is king, and we obey our king. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over Christ, over which Christ, who is sovereign over it all, does not cry, Mine. You know, I had this little section in my sermon notes where I tried to write out and describe this, and I was just like, This is just terrible. What am I going to do with this? I just struck the whole thing and threw in Galatians 1 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, I'll get it together here, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might pre- be preeminent, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. If I could go back and write this sermon again, I would have one thing, all. Do you notice the three songs that we sang? All. He has all authority, church All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Given by the Father. Jesus is crowned king of the universe. He defeated death and sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. As a king, he has a kingdom, not of this world, but of the heavenly realm to which he is gathering followers from all nations. Consider Revelation 7, 9 through 10. And after this I looked, and behold... "...a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, all tribes, peoples and languages worshiping King Jesus. Jesus owns it all so we can go." There's a word missing from that sign over there. It says, there's no therefore. It says, go and make disciples of all nations. The therefore is therefore a reason. He has all authority. And so he gives us a command. And while we think of the commands of the Great Commission beginning in verse 18, I believe they actually started much earlier in chapter 28. And Jason touched on it. Last week, we see them shortly after the resurrection. And to be an evangelist actually means to be one who proclaims good news, the evangel of the kingdom. Yes, God starts with an angel and a mighty evangelist. That sets the authority. Now the angel proclaims to the weak, to the two Marys, to the two women, the least credible. And the disciples, how are they doing? Not too good, right? They're still hiding out. Since they have been at the, chapter, the beginning of chapter 28, in verse 10, Jesus commands the women not to be afraid and go and tell his brothers. Jason, thank you for pointing that out last week. The restorative power of that word, brothers. They were hiding, they were ashamed, they were fearful. And Jesus reconciled them. And to be fully reconciled, they would go to Galilee. And this is not the first time that Jesus said, meet me in Galilee. He said it in chapter 24 or 26, verse 32, right as he was telling Peter that he would deny. He says, go meet me in Galilee. It's time for Jesus to restore and commission the disciples. It's the next step of obedience. We have a train of obedience. Mary, the disciples. Verse 16. Now the eleven went to Galilee. They obeyed. They followed Jesus there. This would have required travel. okay? So they would have had to go. And we know that Jesus was on the earth for 40 days. And let's say April... Ninth was Resurrection Sunday, okay? So we're a week out from that. And Galilee wasn't exactly close to Jerusalem, about 70 miles to the north. About a 30-hour walk or a three-day's journey. And about a week had passed before they arrived in Galilee. And he would bless them in that place. He would bless their obedience. Christ would appear to Doubting Thomas to prove his resurrection Peter would be restored by Christ on the shores of Galilee. And before he ascended, he had a command to give these men of Galilee, and he took them to an amazing place to do it. They didn't know what was next. They thought, as we learn in Acts, well, I think it's Acts 1, that will you now set up the kingdom, Jesus, here on earth? Will you do that for us? Jesus has a different commission in mind. In verse 16, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Have you ever been to a high mountain? Highest mountain? Climbed one in Colorado one time. 14,000 feet. This one wasn't that big. But over and over again, in Scripture, the mountains were meeting places of God with men. This mountain could have been the place of the Sermon on the Mount... Where he fed the 5,000, or even the Mount of Transfiguration. Regardless, it was a place of significance where the apostles would have understood that's where we're going to meet Jesus. And so here we are on this mountain. And the mountain traditionally is Mount Arabel, and it's about 1,200 feet above sea level. I like to think it was a clear day, and you could see for miles and miles. And they see Jesus alive. Go to Galilee where you will see him alive. As we're told in verse 10. From the text, it was the 11. It says some doubted still. So they needed to hear him again. They had obeyed up to now and they needed a claim, a command, and a comfort. To remind you what he said, he said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When you look out over a mountain, it sort of brings that to reality, doesn't it? He sounds like a king. He is the general standing before the troops, showing them the battlefield. He's about to give them the mission impossible. And here is the command, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, four distinct commands. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them. What's the imperative here? This is a really interesting question. What is the imperative? There is one command that stands out, and that is the command to make disciples disciples. Every other command supports the making of disciples. The going, the baptizing, the teaching, all support building up fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the word Christian is used three times, the word disciple is used 269 times. And what is a disciple? A Christ follower. A follower of Christ. In India, when we were there, it made a lot of sense when you were evangelizing to Indians that Jesus would have been a guru. And a guru is a teacher, it actually means one who dispels darkness. The category in most countries is who do you follow? And we follow a lot of people. Who do you follow on Instagram? To follow Jesus would mean to be his students, the one who surrendered their life to him. And the formula is disciples share. Disciples are made, the church is built, kingdom outposts are formed, people begin to reach their own people, right? That's the way it goes, right? Easy peasy. Not always. God is interested in His glory, His timing, and building faith in the people that go. The speed of disciple disciple evangelism isn't always on our timeline. Sometimes, in the sovereignty of God, labors seem to bear no fruit, fewer or no disciples for many years. It's chucking rocks out of the field to prepare the soil. And sometimes there's no disciples. I'll tell you a story told by Tim Kasi, many of us are familiar with him, dispatches from the front, of a missionary couple ministering in Indonesia for many years to an unreached people group without any believers coming to the Lord. And before they left on their first furlough, the Muslim lady who had helped clean their home came to Christ, one disciple. They were discouraged at only having one disciple after so many years, and so they went home with their heads hung low. Upon their return, the housekeeper had a confession. Sir, when you were gone, I have done something. While you were away, I led 30 of my Muslim friends and family to Jesus, and we've been using your house to meet for Bible study. <laughs> Isn't that, <laughs> that is like our God, right? We go on to his authority. He converts. He saves. He spreads. We are the ones who plant seeds and water. Only God makes it grow. Through the work of the authority of the Holy Spirit, our seeds of faith and obedience take root and bear fruit at the perfect time God intends, and he gets the glory. Yet for stories like this to happen, it means going. We have to cast the seed on the ground. Go actually means go. We need face-to-face, person-to-person contact. In the Greek, it actually means to go from one, proceed from one place to another, and then more specifically, as you go, along the way, departing from one place and going to another. And when we go, it's sometimes for months, and sometimes for years, and sometimes thousands of miles, it means loss and pain, separation from families cultures, celebrations, there are casualties. It costs something. Some may lose their minds and even their lives. But the vessels of clay, showing the surpassing power, belongs to God and not to us. I love, I love this quote, and the guys, the elders, would, uh, I always use these nautical themes. And it says, a ship is safe in a harbor, but that's not what ships are for. We're safe here, but that's not what we're intended to do. And how beautiful are those vessels that bring good news. Some of my greatest and sweetest moments have been visiting with families who have gone cross-culturally. I've stayed at their homes in their places where they live, eaten at their tables, and struck me there are many, many hard aspects of their lives, but for the most part, they are just like everyone else. I'm always struck by the normalcy of their lives. They go to work, they go to school, they have neighbors, they have friends, they raise their kids, they have arguments, their kids disobey. Electricity goes out, people steal from them. Garbage collection, it was just amazing. I I was always laughing at garbage collection in these other countries. It is not like clockwork. 6 a.m., our truck comes, not so. They are under the threat of having their visa revoked, but you know what? They radiate Jesus because he's there with them. They're doing it out of loving obedience for their king who gave all for them and among the people in which they are living. Paul captures it well in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-9. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves Because you have become very dear to us, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night, that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Next command. We baptize. Separate them out. We teach, we gather them back together. And we equip them. So we baptize. We call disciples to Jesus to come and die to themselves in the waters of baptism and be raised again to life in Christ, publicly. And in countries where it's not legal to be a Christian, publicly has its risk, does it not? And baptism is the outward expression of an inward change. And in hostile places, people, most pastors don't even consider a believer To be a true believer, unless they've risked their lives to publicly be baptized. Jeff, I love those pictures of of people being baptized in little kiddie pools, in oceans, in rivers. I even read a story of one where I think it was like in Siberia where they cut a hole in the ice. I think it's cold down there. But they do it because of the joy. And last, we are commanded to teach, not facts. Note the word, observe all that I have commanded you. All, there's that word all. I wish I had like an all counter here. More than anything, new believers need sound teaching. Like Paul to Timothy, keeping a close watch on oneself and the teaching, all while keeping a close watch on the flock. Teaching is the fuel for disciples. And we're doing this. We're doing this with partners even this past week there was a pastoral training for some of our pastors in India. Some of the most difficult difficult places to be a Christian and that work is going to bear fruit that we'll never know about. So, church what is the fuel for you? The fuel for bold, joyful obedience to the Great Commission. I want to take a little diversion here. And I have time to do it, thank you. This is for everyone in the room. I want to share the gospel. For those that don't know Jesus, please listen. If you haven't tuned, up, tuned into this message until now, listen. For those who've heard it before, listen again. Remember the gospel. Remember what he has done for you. Remember the good news. Last weekend, uh, Tim and I went to the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. When somebody, first person asked me, I'm like, is that prison ministry? And it's not, it's actually a museum. It opened in 1829, it's right over there by the art museum. And in many ways, when you go there, things are not much different than they were in the late 1800s, and up until it was closed in 1970. It's one of those places, if you look at it from a gospel lens, you'd see more than you'd ever expect. They have an exhibit there, and it's called Prisons Today. At the beginning of the exhibit, you come to a sign, and the sign says, have you ever broken the law? Okay, okay. And they list a few offenses, drug use, drunk driving, insurance fraud, assault, shoplifting, underage drinking, yes or no. If it's yes, go left. If it's no, go right. So what do you think I did? Right. Yeah, right. I went right. And and you're faced with a sign and it says, you're very unusual. 70% of American adults have committed a crime that could lead them to prison. Most of us will never experience trial, arrest, or prison. Why is that? Whoops. I thought I was better than that. I better go left. I was faced with a sign. Did you get caught? Why or why not? Does that make you a criminal? Am I a criminal? Yes. Do I deserve to be in prison? Yes. I deserve worse. I deserve hell and separation from God. The soul that sins shall die. Have you sinned? To sin means to fall short of God's glory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And going down a little further, there was a wall of confession. And there displayed on that wall were confessions from various people. Or about 20 confessions written out in their own writing. And here are two specific confessions. I want you to notice the contrast between the two of these. One time I was cashing a check at the drive through as a part of the bank and they gave me someone else's money. When I noticed it, I didn't drive back and tell them. Instead, I kept the money because I really needed it for me and my son to pay the bills and get food. And another, I stole things. I robbed people for money. Fighting was a daily routine. I stole cars at night from dealerships and returned them By morning, before anyone knew, I extorted people out of money. I sold and bought drugs. I sold guns. I stole bikes, cars, motorcycles. I paid people to beat other people up so it wouldn't fall back on me. I had a woman smuggle drugs across the country on a plane. That's all I can think of for now. At the bottom of the display was a button you could push to see which confessor was in prison and which one wasn't. There was a little light that would light up and say, this person went to prison for this, this person didn't. It was surprising Who actually went to prison for their crimes? It may seem like the first confession was no big deal. The second was bad. That that, that person deserved to be in prison, right? You may think that you're more righteous than another person. And yet God is no respecter of persons. The law is firm and impartial. God does not give a pass to one person and let another go free. God is completely just. And by by breaking one part of the law, you've broken them all. James 2.10 says whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point of it is guilty of breaking all of it. And not only you, we have the whole world is held accountable to King Jesus. Romans 3.19-20 says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, we go to give people knowledge of sin, to pique their conscience. The ways that they were practicing and worshiping their idols are wrong and they are sinful. And how about you? Are you aware of your sin? Could you write on that wall and confess all you've done wrong? Are you guilty? I am far worse than what anybody in this room would know. I'm the chief of sinners to me. But God did something. Verses 21 through 22 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in our King Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. Whom God put forward as a propitiation substitute, a pleasing substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. He is just. Because in his divine forbearance, he had mercy and he passed over your former sins. You deserve to be in prison. He's passing them over. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. that I mean, he might be the just and the justifier who won, who has faith. We all deserve to be in prison cells. And if you go there and you sit in that prison cell and you picture that door closed, some of those people sat in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. We deserve that. But Jesus put himself forth in your place as a gift. God passed over your sin because Jesus was put to death on a cross. His blood covered the penalty, the court sentence for your sin. Justice was satisfied. He took away that penalty from you. Your sins were cast into the sea to be remembered no more. You are now free. Could you imagine your death sentence being commuted The life term commuted. No more condemnation. And so it spoke of obedience. The gospel makes things easier, doesn't it? Now your obedience comes from faith. The same faith that believed the gospel. God starts a new work in you when you believe the gospel. And Paul captures this well. We know Paul was the chief of sinners. He was the the one who, the most likely, the most least likely to be called an apostle. He was set apart for God, which he promised beforehand in his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. This is Romans 1, 1 through 6 who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace, forgiveness, and apostleship, commission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Christ for the spread of the gospel to the nations. You get to proclaim the good news, not because it's objectively true. It's true to you. And for the whole world, should they receive it in faith. It is good news. The death destroyer, Jesus, has won the victory over sin and death and is calling people from all nations to perform the victory celebration. So, easy, right? Believe the gospel. Go to the nations. It's not a pill. Hudson Taylor once said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. So finally, I bring you to comfort. And this is the best part, right? This is the part I was talking about. Look at verse 20. And behold... Or some translations say, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. All ways. Jesus goes with you, not part of the way, but to the end. He will never leave nor forsake you. It was this text, the end of verse 20 that powered the great missionaries David Livingston and John Patton to go deep into the African jungles to a remote island in the Pacific inhabited by cannibals. It has been the song of those persecuted in Bangladesh, in a VOM magazine I just read, the faith of John Chow martyred in North Sentinel Island in 2018. If they were to go and do all that Jesus commanded, he would be with them. And they testified to that truth, sometimes with their death, over and over again. And that comfort is for you today, Jeff and Kirsten. He'll be with you always. And where you are, Jesus is. Good news, huh? So, how does this work out? Let's start to land the plane here. I don't want to give you a list, it really comes down to a simple formula. Again, from a Dispatches on the Front video of an Albanian missionary, pray, meet people, tell them about Jesus. Can we say that? Pray, meet people, tell them about Jesus because he's with you right there. Pray to the king of all the universe. Number one, prayer is the greatest weapon any disciple maker can wield. Seniors, if you can't get out, and do something, you can pray. Kids, you can pray. We can all pray. Prayer takes the battle from the physical realm and places it into the spiritual, into God's hands. It is like the Lord's prayer, his kingdom come, his will be done. Go. Meet everyone you can. And as we said before, it's as you go, tell them the good news of the kingdom, that the king that is standing right beside you. Jesus is your king. He's your captain. He has all authority. And this is going to sound weird. I don't know why I was led to say this. You are not a cat. You're like what in the world? You don't have 9 lives. You have one. For King Jesus. One life, no regrets. Jesus has forgiven you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Jesus will be with you. His promises never fail. Christ will be for you. Christ behind you. Christ with you. He will never leave nor forsake. You have one life for Jesus. What are you going to do? I want to take some time in silence at the end of the sermon and just have you pray. Maybe it's the first step of praying, meeting people and telling them about Jesus. Who are the people that you could pray for? Are they near? Are they far? Pray for them. What would he have you do next? You know, yesterday there's some there's a woman up the street that we're trying to minister to, and I just had to be obedient and get a thing of flowers because her flowers would sit on my counter until I went down and met with her and told her about Jesus. Do something. Take an action. This is an exhortation, not a condemnation, church. It's an exhortation. Take an action. The first action is prayer. So let's pray for a few moments, about 30 seconds, and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we so often don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. And when we see you, when we see you, we are changed. So, Lord, I pray that this morning and in the coming weeks, as Jeff brings more of sermons calling us to go and spread this good news, Lord, that we would begin a heart transformation. Lord, that we would loosen our grip on the things of America, the things that we hold so dear, the things that consume our time and our minds and our energies, and look, fix our eyes on you, the one who delivered us from all sin, the one who defeated death, and the one who's going to come again. And Lord, we will give account for our hours and our days and our years one life will soon be passed but only that's what's done for Christ will last so Lord I pray that this morning it would start in each one of our hearts that we'd be convicted of how we've fallen short of how we've not honored you with our, our minds and our hearts you've not been first in our lives And Lord, when you're first, everything else falls into place. And Lord, so I pray for all of us in this church this morning. Be merciful to us. Thank you for the joy. Thank you for the praise and the worship. But Lord, let it extend beyond this place, let it extend into our towns, into our homes, along the way, in our workplaces. Along the way, when we travel, along the way, when we go to the nations, along the way, when we're in villages and don't know what to say or do. For you are with us always to the end of the age, to the time when you come back to make everything your own. So, Lord, be with us, be our strength, be our guide. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.